Good morning, everybody. It's such a joy to be here. Uh, we've been in, in Sheffield now for about six years. And uh, some of you know, when we first moved to Sheffield, we didn't think we were going to be staying. We thought it was only a temporary uh, stay until uh, we moved back as missionaries on the other side of the Pennines where we'd been working because they need all the help they can get. And we were delighted to be members of this church for, for the first two years. When we settled on the far side of the city in Mearsbrook, where we live, uh, we felt it right to join a, a more local church where we could more easily perhaps take our neighbours. And so we're members of St. Chad's uh, Wood Seats. That's where we worship, um, well, where Nad worships most of the time and where I worship where, when I'm not elsewhere. But I'm working with churches in the north and the west of the city, Anglican churches, to particularly to, um, as the Diocese of Sheffield encourages its clergy to see their role less as, shall we say, performers of ministry tasks and more as uh, equippers of others in ministry. Some of us thought that's what we were ordained to do in the first place, but that's news to some. Um, um, I, my, work, my role is to work with churches and clergy particularly to help them raise their game in that kind of way. And I have particular clergy who are in what I call the remedial class, I spend a lot of time with Tom Finnamore. Uh, <laughs> no, we, we cheer each other up. And, uh, but we're looking today at Nehemiah chapter 9. I know you're working your way through the book of uh, Nehemiah under the uh, overall title of Exiles and Ambassadors. If you've got a Bible, you might want to turn to, to Nehemiah 9. Uh, I'm, I'm reading from uh, the New American Standard Bible, which I think will come up on the screen there. I'm going to read... Um, the first four, the first three verses, then verses five to twenty, and then the last few verses of Nehemiah nine. It's quite a long chapter, but um, if you know the story so far, after rebuilding the, the city walls, the people are gathered uh, to hear God's word read. They responded by celebrating the feast of booths, and now. Uh, a few days later, they gathered again. On the 24th day of the month, the sons of Israel assembled with fasting in sackcloth and with dirt upon them. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. While they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day and for another fourth they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. Uh, the Levites said, this is verse 5, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. May your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You've made the heavens, the heaven of heavens with all their host, the earth and all that's on it, the seas and all that's in them. You gave life to all of them and the heavenly host bows down before you. You're the Lord God who chose Abraham, brought him out from Ur of the Chaldees, gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. He gave it to his descendants and you fulfilled your promise for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry by the Red Sea. And then you performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants and the people of his land. For you knew they acted arrogantly toward them and made a name for yourself as it is this day, you divided the sea before them, so they passed through the midst of the sea on dry ground, and their pursuers you hurled into the depths like a stone into raging waters. With a pillar of cloud you led them by day, with a pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. And then you came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven. 
You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So you made known to them your holy Sabbath and laid down for them commandments, statutes and law through your servant Moses. You provided bread from heaven for them for their hunger. You brought forth water from a rock for them for their thirst. And you told them to enter in order to possess the land which you swore to give them. But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn, wouldn't listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and didn't remember your wondrous deeds which you performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness. And you didn't forsake them. Even when they made for themselves a calf of molten metal and said, this is your God who brought you up from Egypt. And they committed great blasphemies. You in your compassion didn't forsake them in the wilderness. Pillar of cloud didn't leave them by day to guide them on their way, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they were to go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them. Your manna you didn't withhold from their mouth and you gave them water for their thirst. Now verse 32. Now therefore, our God, the great the mighty and the awesome God who keeps covenant and loving kindness, do not let all the hardship seem insignificant to you, which has come upon us, our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers and all your people from the days of the kings of Assyria to this day. However, you are just in all that's come upon us. You've dealt faithfully, but we've acted wickedly. For our kings, our leaders, our priests and our fathers haven't kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your admonitions with which you have admonished them. But they, in their own kingdom, with your great goodness which you gave them, with the broad and rich land which you set before them, didn't serve you or turn from their evil deeds. Behold, we're slaves today. And as to the land which you gave to our fathers to eat of its fruit and bounty, behold, we're slaves in it. Its abundant produce is for the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They also rule over our bodies and over our cattle as they please. So we are in great distress. Phew. It's quite long, isn't it? Uh, Leslie Newbegin, who um, was a great missional leader and writer of the church in the late 20th century, a, a bishop of the church, United Church of South India, and then returned to the UK in the 80s as a great critic of the Western church and a great missional advocate, in one of his books wrote this. He says, It's surely a fact of inexhaustible significance that what our Lord left behind him was not a book, nor a creed, nor a system of thought, nor a rule of life, but a visible community. And what he goes on to say the whole core of biblical history is the story of a calling of a visible community to be God's own people, his royal priesthood on earth, the bearer of his light to the nations. Now, what he's saying is something quite profound. You know, when God purposes to reveal himself to, the, to a world which has lost its way with him, this is his great strategy. This is his plan to have a people who will belong to him, amongst whom his presence rests, uh, who will be such a sign of his presence that when other people see that community, they will say, surely God is real and is present and we can know him. That, that's his plan. It was, uh, the, the story of the Bible, uh, after, the fall, after, after the fall of the human race away from God, 
God's plan of reconciling broken humanity with himself revolves around a people. A people, Israel in the Old Testament, the church in the New, who will belong to him, uh, amongst whom his spirit uh, uh, resides. And that's still his plan today. Now, of course, that plan in the Old Testament was thwarted by the people themselves. Um, Despite their incredible experience of God's grace and presence and uh, initial great fruitfulness, God settled them in a land that wasn't theirs and they did truly become a light to the other nations. What happened was that the people lost their way with God. They became complacent, they became disobedient uh, and ultimately fell so far away from him that he allows them to be carried off into exile in Babylon and now they have to live uh, with um, foreign, a foreign nation taunting them, saying, your God isn't as good as our God. Uh, our gods are clearly more powerful than yours because look at this. He, we've overcome you. And the whole people of Israel are broken and have to come to terms with this broken history. But of course, the, what happens when the Babylonians are overthrown by the Persians uh, uh, some 70 years later is that uh, a, a portion of the Israelite exiles are resettled in Jerusalem. And we've been tracking their story as we've been working our way through the book of Nehemiah. And by a remarkable uh, exercise of God's grace, Nehemiah comes to this broken city and begins under God to see the revival, if you like, of God's kingdom project, the revival of uh, 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 the existence of a people who will belong to him. And over the weeks, we've seen how, against all odds, Nehemiah has presided over the rebuilding of the walls. And now they've got the walls in place. But that, of course, is not quite enough. Um, this is the mistake we sometimes make. We sometimes think if we get the structures in place or we have a, a, you know, a, a great zingy program, then that's really what it's all about. Uh, not a bit of it. The walls are only the framework, if you like, uh, in which the real work can, can be done. And having got the, the physical infrastructure in place, now the real work begins, and you, we began looking at it in chapter 8, of um, God... Uh, restoring a people who will inhabit that place, who will be a people who are for his glory, a people who, to use our our phrase, uh, our title this morning, are consecrated, set apart for his purposes. That's really what God is looking for. And um, we want to look this morning, as we look at Nehemiah 9, uh, what does it mean to be a consecrated people? If we are today to be the kind of people who are going to have an impact on our communities, our streets, our workplaces, our city, um, who, if we're going to be the kind of people who will live a life uh, which demonstrates the truthfulness, the beauty, the uh, closeness of God, what will that people look like? What will be the hallmarks? What does it mean to be consecrated, set apart for God's purposes? And from Nehemiah 9, I want to suggest that there are four particular hallmarks that we come across here. And I want to dwell, if you think I'm going on forever and ever, don't worry, because I want to talk about the first hallmark far more than the, the, the other three. They kind of hang on it. But this is the really, uh, this, this is the most important bit of it. So what's the first sign of being a consecrated people? It, the first thing is this, we inhabit God's story. We are those people whose lives are shaped by the fact that we root ourselves firmly in the story of God. In the, uh, when the people gather, you thought that reading was long that I read, um, they um, read for a fourth of the day from the, the scriptures. That's at least three hours, uh, if there are 12 daylight hours. And the scribes, uh, the Levites, are probably reading 
the books that we today call Deuteronomy and, and, and Numbers. Those two books which set out um, God's story uh, and God's requirement for his people. And this was news to the people. Um, although this is their history, they, they have lost sight of it. Uh, and that's why in chapter 8, when, when the great works of God in salvation, in the, in the rescue and creation of his people are read out to them, they, they kind of they burst into tears and say, this is who we are. We didn't know. We've, we've forgotten who we are. We've, we've lost our, our memory, as it were. No wonder there's a profound reconfiguring in, in terms of the, the life of God's people. And it strikes me that they're not alone in terms of people who lose their way with God's story. It seems to me that there are two particular ways in which we ourselves, even today, can forget who we are, or we can live a different story, a story other than God's story. Uh, we live the story of our own experience. Um, often we go through hard times and um, we allow the complexities of our uh, hard experiences, our sense of God's absence, even though we're knocking fiercely on the, on the door of heaven, we, we, we lose sight of the, of, of, the, of the closeness and reality of God and we allow our poor experience, as it were, to eclipse that sense of God's presence. And I know how tempting that is. I, I'm not minimizing the difficulties that many of us face day in, day out, uh, through the circumstances of our lives or the lives of those close to us. And goodness me, we've come through quite a hard time, haven't we, over the last couple of years uh, to compound it all. It's very easy to, to be absorbed in, in, in what's going on. Or, and perhaps most significantly, we live the, the, the story, the false story that the world preaches to us. You see, we, we're not neutral. We're not in a neutral place. We are bombarded from every side, uh, from the people with whom we live, from the, the things we watch on Netflix, for, for the, you know, the, the, the stuff we pick up on social media. We're, we're bombarded by a different story, a story which tells us that we, rather than God, uh, are the right people to determine our own destiny, uh, that um, we're kind of our own gods, because, goodness me, who should... Who is God to tell us what we should or shouldn't do? Or, you know, we live um, in a world uh, which tells us that God's truth is relative and really uh, is up for grabs rather than something which is revealed to us. We live in a world which tells us that our understanding of who we are, our identity, should be dictated by the opinion formers, the great social media gurus or whoever it might be, uh, rather than anything else. And, and, and we're distracted by it. You know, it, it, because this story resonates around, I mean, goodness me, in our public life, we're bombarded by a story which says that truth and honor matters little these days. You know, when did that go out of fashion? Integrity and character. But, uh, you know, it, things are excused in public life in so many other, other sectors. So there are many things which which sort of, knock us off course. And I would actually say that it, we're also living in an era where people, perhaps not un, unlike the people of Nehemiah's day, are less familiar, shall we say, with the story of God uh, than has been the case, certainly in my lifetime. We need to be um, absorbed with it. And, you know, the story is told in, in the Scriptures. We read the Scriptures so that we... Uh, can understand who God is, what he has been about, where we have come from, and where we are going. 
Am I, are you losing me? Thank you. Okay. Is that better? Can you hear me? Oh, well, yes, I can hear myself now. That's good. That sounded quite good. Um, Tom Wright, who was the Bishop of Durham and is a, a, a great uh, New Testament scholar and Bible teacher. Some of you will have read his books like, you know, Luke for Everyone or Acts for, you know, and some of you might have read his monster theological tomes. But Tom Wright um, has a lovely image. He says, um, imagine that you have found a long-lost Shakespeare play. And like all Shakespeare plays, he's got five acts. And you're so excited. Nobody's ever seen this. And you, you've discovered it. You want to put it on. You want to stage it. Uh, there's a slight problem. It's not quite complete. Uh, you've got the first four acts. They're, they're, they're complete. Uh, and when it comes to act five, you've got the first scene and the last page. But the rest of it is missing. What do you do, he says? Well, this is what you do. He says you get some good actors and you get them to learn their lines. They have to learn their lines in terms of the bit that's written. But when it comes to staging it, what they do for that missing bit, the middle bit of Act 5, is they have to improvise, but they're not allowed to step out of character. So they really need to learn their lines well so they can improvise faithfully. That's like us, he says. The Bible is like that five-act play. It's not quite a complete story. We've got the first four acts. Act 1 is creation. God making the world. Act two is the fall, we going away from God. Act three is Israel, the age of Israel. And Act four is Jesus. Act five is the church era in which we live. We have the first scene, the early church, Acts of the Apostles. And the last page is written. We know how the story ends. But we're in that bit that's not quite written, not quite scripted. How do we act? We improvise. But we can't step out of character. And if we're going to stay in character, we need to know the story. We need to know about uh, Nehemiah. We need to know where we've come from, that our calling originated in the call of, you know, a childless uh, Semitic man on a journey, Abraham, and that it goes through the ups and downs. We need to know the stories of Jesus so that we can consciously do what he did. I mean, it's obvious, isn't it? Raymond Brown, another great uh, New Testament scholar, um, Commenting on this particular chapter in Nehemiah says, This chapter's use of Scripture is a reminder that we're not likely to have a big vision of God if we don't spend time with the magnificent book he's given us. We need to inhabit it. And it's not just about, you know, reading it in a sterile way. It's absorbing it. It's seeking to do the things that it says. It means reading it in a disciplined way for ourselves. I, last year, I did something I haven't done for quite a number of years. I read through the whole Bible from cover to cover in a year. I mean, it's not a big deal, uh, but I was surprised I hadn't done it for a few years. Golly, what a great thing. If you've never done it, I do commend it. It's only not quite the end of January. You've still got time to do it. You know, three chapters a day, you'll do it in a year. But what a difference it makes. I mean, skip over the bits that you don't understand, but get the bits that you do. Get it in. Um, that, it, it's so important that we rehearse it. Um, only then are we in a position to expose the false stories that uh, are peddled all around us. So these are people who begin to inhabit God's story, and it completely changes the way they see things. And the second thing I notice about being a consecrated people is this, that they are people who declare God's glory. Their response to hearing the word is to worship. Did you notice that? When, you know, it, it's not just that they are... Um, reciting, as it were, or reading uh, the story, 
they're, they're putting it into praise as we have done, as we've sung songs of worship. That's why our songs of worship need to be carefully chosen, that they truly are those which help us inhabit the story of God. It's a great way of reinforcing it. But they, in their worship, you know, they're, they're, oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted. You're, you alone are the Lord. What a great statement that is. You know, there are no other gods. Everything else is an idol. Only you count, Lord. That's what they're saying. You're the only one who's made the heavens. They're putting him front and center. Uh, when, we, when we worship, something shifts, doesn't it? I know that for myself, one of the great spiritual disciplines I have to uh, adopt is that, you know, especially maybe when things are tough or where I'm not sensing God's closeness, I find the best thing to do is to worship, uh, just to declare God's praise. Something shifts in the heavenlies and something shifts in my heart when I do that. You know, praise, worship is almost, it's not escapism, it's declaring the, the ultimate truths in the face of apparently contradictory evidence. And that's, I mean, these are people who are still crushed under a foreign lord, a foreign king. There are bully boys in the tribal leaders in the areas around Jerusalem. But what they're saying is, you alone are the Lord. You're the only one. And actually, there's a, there's a really important thing, it seems to me, about uh, declaring God's glory and declaring it uh, together. Um, that it's worship which is one of the most countercultural things that we can do. Uh, worship, uh, declaring the fact that God is a gracious God, a merciful God, um, is a, that's a very different understanding of who God is from, uh, shall we say, the understanding of God uh, which prevails in the world in which we live today. Um, one of the things I know, one of the most powerful uh, sort of cultural um, motifs, I would say, in our world today is that of individualism. Um, I am my own Lord. I'm the one who counts. You know, uh, individualism is not only um, popular, it's sort of celebrated. And yet it's a very lonely place to be. But it, it, the heart of individualism is sort of the notion of self-reliance um, and, and, and justice for me. I need to have my rights. I need to have my deserts. You know, that's a, that's a fatal road to travel because if we, if we get our deserts with God, then we're all toast. Um, and I thank God that he doesn't give me what I deserve, but he gives me what I don't deserve. That worship is me saying, God, I am not worthy of anything, but, but thank you for your grace. That actually what I have is unmerited. That's a very countercultural story, but what a liberating story that is. Isn't it great not to be reliant upon ourselves? Which probably leads me to the third notion, uh, third dimension of what it means to be consecrated. This is a people who then begin, a consecrated people, own up to our sins and our weaknesses. Do you notice how the chapter finishes? Now, therefore, verse 32, our God, the great, the mighty, the awesome God, don't let all this hardship seem insignificant before you that's come upon us. However, verse 33, you are just in all that's come upon us, for we have acted wickedly. You know, there's no hiding here. When people are confronted with the story of God and begin to own it for themselves, they begin to realize who we are, that actually we have uh, let God down. There, there are two dimensions, it seems to me, to confession. One is it is good to acknowledge the ways in which we fall short. I mean, goodness me, we can pretend, but that's a, a, an awful, a hellish place to be. 
Because if I pretend, then I am still in thrall to the things that hold me back from God. It's much, you know, confession has a power to it. I'm not, you know, we need a, it's good to confess to God, to be open before Him. And it's good too to be open to maybe a select number of, of, of people, maybe an accountability partner or somebody whom we trust or a spouse or, uh, you know, close friend, whatever it might be. But there's something releasing, isn't there? I know in my own life that when I've plucked up the courage to say to somebody, do you know what, I have to tell you this, I really fouled up there. I'm really struggling with this. Um, it's a, a releasing thing. It's a, I feel almost you know, more that I've released it to God than I've released it to somebody else. That's why actually, you know, from time to time, sort of public confession, acknowledging before God as a body that we are sinners and yet forgiven is a really powerful thing to do. But it's not just confessing sin, it's actually also confessing weakness. A consecrated people acknowledge our weakness. You see, there is a temptation to think that um, if we're set apart for God and for His purposes, we have to be like, you know, latter-day Rambos, just plowing a, you know, a, a our furrow before God, proving to him how good we are. Great, you've called us to be your people. Let's show you how good we are, God. You know, ooh, you know you'll be really pleased you've called us. You, know, you just take a rest now, uh, and we'll just, uh, you should see our Natter program. It's uh, the best in Sheffield, you know. It's, uh, Natter is great here, I know. But what I'm saying is this. Confession is actually not confessing our strength, but confessing our weakness. These are people who are saying we're weak, you know, we're, we're surrounded by, we're, we're under th- enthralled to, to hostile powers. You know, we, we're, we're not strong. Nevertheless, you are. The secret to fruitfulness, to consecration, to actually being the kind of people whom God wants us to be is actually being open about what we're not. The, the whole message, it seems to me, of the New Testament, and it comes out so clearly in so many of the Apostle Paul's writings, is that it's when we, are, when we admit to God that we cannot do anything, but He can. Uh, uh, that we actually see real breakthrough. You know, when God calls us to make a difference in our city, He hasn't called us because He thinks we're better than average. He's probably just calling us because He, he knows we're going to be obedient to that. Uh, that's all He's looking for, people who are obedient, who will press in. In weakness, saying, Lord, unless you show up, we, 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 we have no hope here. That's what confession is all about. That's what the people are doing here. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous to think that this occupied, tiny people in a newly rebuilt city are going to be, you know, the force that's going to overcome the world. But this was the nation that produces, produced the Messiah out of which we came and which is God's hope for the world. So when we confess our weakness, we talked about we gave this sermon the title, um, Repent- Consecration, Repentance, and Revival. The great precursor to revival, it seems to me, and it ha- has been the case throughout Christian history, is a confession, an acknowledgement of what we are not, so that God can make us what he wants us to be. And finally, fourthly, there's a reordering of our lives. Confession isn't just, you know, words, but it's actually action. On the 24th month, this is the very beginning of chapter 9, the people gather with fasting in sackcloth. The descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners and came and stood and confessed their sins. It's this separation that is at the heart of a reordering, putting aside the things that get in the way. Now, this is not about 
removing ourselves from the world. The thing about a people for God's pleasure, people for God's own possession, is that we're called to be engaged with the world. That's the whole point of it. You know, we're supposed to be there so people can see. But you and I both know that it's really hard to, to live in that tension between engagement and distinctiveness. Jesus manages it perfectly, and, and, and he's our model. But these people had drifted too far the other way. They, it looks as if they had compromised God by disobeying him, and, uh, and from the men marrying foreign wives and taking on their gods, that had to be put right. They were certainly enthralled to some of those local bully boys and the, the tribal leaders roundabout who were influential people. You know, you don't want to cross them, uh, people were saying earlier in the book. You know, you've got to do what they say. They need to put that aside. That's what's happening here. And for us, it will be different things. And it's not that God refuses to use those who are not perfect. Of course, that's not the case because he uses us as we are. But we know that if we fill our lives with inappropriate things, we don't have the space for God. I need, I need to finish in a minute, but I, I'm old enough, and some of you are looking around. So when I was growing up, um, my favorite time of the week was 5 o'clock on a Friday afternoon because at 5 o'clock on Friday on television was Cracker Jack. Oh, I went with friends, yeah. Uh, it even got as far as Leeds. And, um, but Cracker Jack was this great kids' magazine program and it finished every Friday with the Cracker Jack quiz. And these kids in school uniform would be at the front and they had to answer questions from Eamon Andrews or Michael Aspel. And uh, if you got it right, you got a prize, you held it. If you got it wrong you got a cabbage. Don't ask me why, but that's what you did. And you, all these kids were laden up with all these things, and you kept accumulating them until you dropped one, and then you were out. And the last one standing won the valuable prize of a Cracker Jack pencil, as those of you remember. It, just, it sounds more like Reeves and Mortimer all the time, doesn't it? But anyway, that's what it was. I used to, lo I used to love it. I used to want to be on Cracker Jack. Uh, my life has felt very much like Cracker Jack at times. You know what it's like? You feel as if you're holding too much stuff. And sometimes you're holding the wrong things. And sometimes you're holding them deliberately. You know, sometimes we have an, a wrong a, attachment to practices, attitudes, habits, which we know are not helpful. And they dull our spiritual effectiveness. It's letting them go. That's what, it, what, what um, is happening here. This is what a, a reordering of life looks like. Laying aside all the stuff that shouldn't be in our lives... Even the good things which maybe have a wrong place in life so that we can fill our lives with the good stuff that God wants to pour in. That's what's happening here. That's what it means to be consecrated, to say, I want to go for the best. I want consciously to live in the light of God's story. I want to act, to improvise, you know, in the light of what I know to be true about God and no other false story. I want to, to be a person of praise. I want the praise of God to be on my lips so that actually... Uh, my whole life is conditioned by his greatness, his goodness. Thirdly, you know, I, w I want to be open and, and be with him and others about what I'm not so I can be who he wants me to be. And I am determined to put aside what shouldn't be there so I can press on with him. Friends, from the nods I'm seeing, that this is our heart. This is what we long, who we long to be. This is who God longs to make us. Why don't we stand?